0: Hi there. Thanks for tuning in again today. Over the next roughly 75 minutes, we will bring you Session 2, The Health, Economic, and Human Burden of Infections and Pandemics, featuring a fabulous lineup of speakers, and the session is moderated by Keith Martin from the United States. Keith, over to you. Welcome, everyone, wherever you may be around the world, to the fourth World Sepsis Congress, One Global Health Threat sepsis pandemics, and antimicrobial resistance. And for those of you who were able to turn in, we had an inspiring opening to the Congress. And this session though, the second session, we'll be discussing health, economic, and the human burden of infections and pandemics. We know that one person, shockingly, every three seconds dies of sepsis around the world. And 75% of the survivors suffer long-term effects. The poor affected more than anybody else. But in the midst of the tragedy of COVID-19 lies an opportunity. And the opportunity is to build forward better. If we're able to prevent, detect and respond to sepsis, the interesting thing is we create a platform that strengthens the entire health system to address whether it's infectious diseases or non-communicable diseases. And today we have a stellar panel to address just that. So what I'm going to do and I'm going to uh, introduce the panelists. What we'll do is each panelist will speak for about 10 minutes, three minutes of questions. So get your questions ready and put the questions in the question box. And then each panelist will speak and then we'll go from one panelist to the next. So the panelists on this uh, particular uh, panel are as follows in the order which they'll be speaking. Dr. Carolyn fleischmann Struthick, she is a physician scientist from Jenny University in Germany She's a co-author of the first WHO report on sepsis epidemiology and she's been a leader in estimating the burden of sepsis globally. Next, the next session will be on accelerating progress for universal health coverage in South Asia and COVID-19. Dr. Said Masud uh, Ahmed is at Brac University in Bangladesh. He was ranked the second highest uh, Bangladeshi science for social scientists and humanities. His current leading research in advocacy, capacity building, and ways to improve health systems. Our next speaker will be uh, Dr. Tim Buckman. Dr. Buckman will be speaking on health, economic, and the burden of sepsis. Dr. Buckman is at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. He is a professor of surgery and a virologist, the past president of the Shock Society, editor-in-chief of the critical care medicine And he's been a leader in using uh, AI to predict which patients would actually become septic in an ICU. Then Dr. Roy Small from the UNDP, who is a lawyer, he will be speaking on universal health coverage for sustainable development. He has worked with UNDP to promote health systems around the world and to uh, advance actions to address non-communicable diseases, tobacco, and other challenges. And finally, the last speaker will be Mr. Rob Yates. He's at Chatham House in the United Kingdom. Mr. Yates will talk about how universal health coverage can climb up the political ladder. He's a political health economist. He will be speaking on universal health coverage and health financing, and he's an expert in that. And he's been also an advisor to the elders group and other political leaders around the world. So with that, it's my great pleasure to turn this over to Dr. Carolyn Fleshman-Struzik. Carolyn, over to you, and then we'll get to some questions right after your talk. Thank you for joining us.
1: Um, Yeah, thank you for the um, introduction and the invitation to this uh, Fourth World Sepsis Congress. Um, I'll talk about the burden of sepsis and long-term consequences after sepsis and infectious diseases. Um, As already mentioned in the introduction, uh, in the first session, um, sepsis is a major public health burden. It is very prevalent among uh, hospital and ICU patients. Um, The acute mortality is still very high and survivors often face long-term consequences. And above that, approximately one out of three hospitalized COVID 19 patients is affected by sepsis. So uh, the burden is very high, but we still lack um, knowledge on the population incidence of sepsis for most countries, particularly uh, for low and middle income countries. Um, therefore, our sepsis was called a hidden public health disaster. And the WHO urged all member states to improve the knowledge on sepsis epidemiology in the database for that area of research. Um, So what do we know about the burden of uh, sepsis? The most comprehensive uh, study on uh, sepsis epidemiology using the framework of the global burden of sepsis study estimated that um, every year, 49 million um, patients are affected by sepsis worldwide. Um, That is equivalent to 677 cases per 100,000 population, and half of these cases a cure in children, uh, mostly in those under five years. And uh, just for comparison, the Global Burden of Disease study estimated um, around 12.2 million stroke cases um, every year. So sepsis is really a a huge public health burden. Um, The Global Burden of Sepsis study um, estimated that every year around 11 million um, patients die in relation with sepsis. Um and this is um equivalent to around twenty percent of global deaths. Many patients um that die from or with sepsis um have uh, underlying non communicable diseases or injuries that lead to hospitalization and comprise uh, their immune function. And in the last thirty years, um the mortality of sepsis decreased by around thirty percent, um mainly due to the the. Um, successes in prevention of infectious diseases in low- and middle-income countries. Um, A recent uh, Global Burden of Disease study estimated um, the a number of sepsis-related deaths a little higher, around um, 13.7 million deaths each year, and found that around 30% of sepsis-related death are caused by five um, selected pathogens, namely Staph aureus, E. coli, Streptococcus pneumoniae, Glepsella pneumoniae, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And 6 million deaths um, are estimated to um, be caused by three bacterial infectious syndromes, namely lower respiratory tract infections and bloodstream infections and um, peritoneal and intra-abdominal infections. And um, this has, of course, important implications uh, for sepsis prevention, for example, by um, hygiene or vaccination and the provision of acute care services. Um, Sepsis is uh, not only burdensome in terms of acute mortality, um, but survivors often suffer from really significant long-term impairments in the uh, physical, cognitive, and psychological domain. Um, Using health claims data of around um, 23 million um, insurance holders from a large um, health insurance in Germany, uh, we found that um, three out of four survivors suffer from new impairments um, in the 12th month after sepsis and that these impairments are often overlapping. Um, They uh, commonly lead to a new nursing care dependency. Uh, One-third of survivors without pre-existing nursing care dependency required such care in the 12-month post-sepsis. And um, 25% of um, survivors who previously worked uh, were not able to resume work uh, in the first year after their disease. Uh, And, of course, 12-month mortality was also high. More than 30% of patients died within the 12-month after sepsis. Uh, Most common new impairments were um, neuromuscular, musculoskeletal, and cardiovascular diseases, um, but also cognitive impairments, fatigue, and um, also um, depression, anxiety were really common. Um, Notably, uh, not only survivors um, with severe or ICU-treated sepsis, were affected by uh, these impairments by new nursing care dependency and 12-month mortality, but also patients without organ dysfunction, without ICU treatment, and um, even patients without prior impairments um, had new impairments or were newly dependent on nursing care. And that is similar to what we uh, know from COVID-19, for example, where um Post COVID also affects um, patients after mild um, diseases, um, diseases not uh, requiring hospital treatment, for example. And that implies that the number of survivors that need structured aftercare or re- rehabilitation is really high. And uh, there's a really urgent need to um, develop strategies to um, To care for these patients and to um, set um, structures in the healthcare system for their demands. Uh, When we talk about the global burden of sepsis, it's also important uh, to keep in mind that the majority of sepsis cases um, and the majority of um, sepsis-related mortality occurs in um, low and middle income countries with um, sepsis mortality rates up to 10 times higher than in high income countries. And um, also this burden in low and middle income -income countries is really high. We still lack lack data to really understand um, and monitor sepsis epidemiology in these countries um a recent systematic review and meta-analysis found that um sepsis patients in these countries are younger and predominantly um hiv effect- in- infected compared to cohorts from high income countries and that sepsis mortality is higher um in uh, cohorts with higher proportion of HIV-infected um, patients. And the most common um, pathogen isolated in blood cultures was uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis. Uh, that means um, treating uh, sepsis in um, low- and middle-income countries uh, needs um, or may need other um, other uh, strategies for um antibiotic treatment, for example, and um, therefore it is important to better understand underlying pathogens, uh, risk groups, and uh, long-term outcomes also in these regions. Another major challenge in assessing sepsis epidemiology is um, the lack of studies uh, in community-based designs or studies among long-term uh, among survivors to assess long-term outcomes. And the existing studies on um, sepsis epidemiology are limited in their comparability and validity uh, given that uh, study designs um, differ very much uh, among the, the studies and uh, also um, uh, data sources are barely compar- comparable Um, Furthermore, we lack um, standardized um, sepsis definitions um, and definitions that can be applied in all settings, including uh, resource-restricted settings. Um, Furthermore, there's a lack of standardized and complete recording and um, also reporting of, of outcomes in such studies. And many studies in high-income countries rely on administrative data with inherent limitations, as these data are collected for reimbursement rather than for research purposes. And they only mirror the proportion of sepsis cases um, with diagnosed and coded sepsis that can lead to an underestimation of sepsis cases. Uh, In the US, for example, um, a study found that the incidence of sepsis among um, hospital patients was um, 2% using um, sepsis codes to identify sepsis cases and around 6% using clinical criteria and electronic health records. So that means studies uh, on administrative data only show the tip of the iceberg. So how can we do better? Um, first, there's a need uh, for um, better or um, more advocacy and funding for generating evidence in zepsis epidemiology. Um, we need to achieve uh, consensus on a zepsis case definition for zepsis surveillance and epidemiological research that can be applied globally. Um, we need new or advanced databases for sepsis epidemiology research and the better, more accurate ACD coding and standards uh, for sepsis epidemiology studies and core outcomes to make uh, their outcomes comparable. And all this is needed to reduce the burden of sepsis finally and to support survivors um, and patients um, to be with uh, their disease. Yeah, thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Carolyn, that was outstanding. Um, we're going to just get back on track and if there's time for questions at the end, I'm going to post one for you if I may, but I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Said Ahmed in Bangladesh. Uh, Dr. Ahmed, over to you, please.
2: Yeah, welcome to my presentation. So I'll be discussing on the uh, progress uh, on the journey to ESC that has been disrupted by COVID-19 pandemic and how it can be accelerated given the uh, learnings or lessons that we have from the pandemic. Uh, I will begin with a little bit uh, with USC and then move through uh, the main topics like uh, impact of COVID-19 in South Asian countries, what lessons we learn and how we can uh, do better and look forward. So let start with this very uh, plain and simple uh, definition of USC. Um, it means that every person can access good quality health services without suffering financial hardship. And then this is the big definition by WSO where it is more detailed out. I think this box, this uh, is uh, is, is known to all of you. Uh, This is crystallizes the concept of USC. So the smaller box is uh, a smaller cube. The blue cube is where we are now. And the bigger uh, QB is where USC pairs to go. Uh, by increasing the population, which has not been covered yet, by offering services that hasn't been yet uh, in place, and also to reduce cost sharing and fees, so that out-of-pocket expenditure is less. So why USC? I mean, it has lots of benefits just to uh, uh, argue for it we have this health benefits health system benefits economic benefits you know it stimulates economic development reducing poverty and inequality and uh, a large number of uh, i think 100 plus economies were in uh, ignition in, in unitedly declared about the benefits of uh, us how it can better do the development and there is also political benefits like uh, extending health coverage is a popular policy and attracts support. And we have seen in many instances that it was the prime mover of, uh, of some of the politicians to get elected and take leadership like in what happened in the United Kingdom, Thailand, Ghana, Zambia, and many other countries. So how you see, after uh, about uh, 40 years of experience and long deliberation on uh, on how services can be reached to the doorsteps of the people. The world has now had a consensus that the best way to get services, at least the essential services at the doorstep of the population by uh, primary health care. So that's the way. And it was declared in uh, Astana, Kazakhstan, on the occasion of the 48th anniversary of Almaty. And this uh, PC is a revamped one where it mainly focuses on primary care and essential public health functions as the, as an integrated uh, package of health services, empowered people and communities, and also multi-sectoral policy and action. Uh, the see, this uh yeah, yeah in the global uh, goals for sustainable development. The SDG3 deals with these uh, health issues, like uh, ensure healthy lives and promote well being for all at all areas. And especially, the target number 3.8 uh, tells about uh, universal health coverage, uh, achieve universal health coverage, including financial risk protection, access to quality essential health care services, medicines, and vaccines for all. So, how PSC supports how? can uh, we achieve USC through, uh, through PSC and uh, achieve also the health-related disease. Uh, PSC is a cost-effective way of uh, delivering services that has been uh, shown again and again. It, it plays a key role uh, in reducing household health expenditure on health because it provides services at the at near to the community. Uh, uh, and mainly these with preventive and promotive services, so the cost is much less. Uh, it engages empowered people and communities as co-developers of services, which is also which also becomes um, uh, cultural sensitive and increases patient satisfaction, ultimately increasing and improving health outcomes. It also focuses on community-based services to tackle social determinants of health. They are enabling it to reach the vulnerable and disadvantaged population, and there is this multi-sectoral policies and action that are key components of PSC because we know that the health is not limited to health sector alone, so we have to go beyond health sector, and, then, and, and, and we have to uh, focus on health for all in all other sectors. So that is one of the ways how uh, we can achieve PSC. Uh, this slide shows the linkage between this uh, uh, primary health care and universal health coverage, keeping SDG 3 at the center, and also its relation to other uh, other SDG goals like, you know, poverty reduction, education, job, environment, etc. So where does South Asia stand vis-a-vis with with U.S.C. achievement? If we look at this, this is a uh, peak. Uh, COVID data. So the blue ones are 2017 data, and the first one shows coverage of essential health services in South Asia. Uh, USC index score. So USC uh, there is a composite uh, index on USC, and this uh, uh, slide shows that uh, uh, values of those composite index. And we can see that before COVID 19, that is in 2017, the blue one only. Uh, Sri Lanka and uh, and Maldives and, and and Bhutan these three countries had uh, achieved something like 62 percent yes the index was 62 but for the other countries it was hovering uh, below 50 uh, percent mostly or just uh, above 50 percent. So we can understand the situation and if you look on the right uh, this this next graph, We can see that the we can uh, understand the reason because it shows the public health expenditure as percent of GDP in South Asia, and you can see that except Maldives and uh, Sri Lanka, most of these countries were having very low proportion, less than one percent or something of GDP invested in uh, health sector. Uh, The current WHO recommendation is something like two percent of GDP must be uh, invested in health. So, South Asia confronted COVID nineteen very poorly prepared. If you look at this table, you will see that uh, you, know, you know the South Asia invested on average zero point eight nine percent of GDP compared to say the world is five point eight percent. Even East Asia and Pacific is something like four point five four, and all all these health system related indicators, access to basic infrastructure and connectivity all uh, is a dire example of how poorly prepared was South Asia even uh, before uh, confronting the COVID-19. So COVID-19 laid bare the weaknesses of the health system South Asia from poor infrastructure and poor investment. With in terms of service, yeah, the the non-COVID-19 COVID-19 services suffered greatly. There was acute shortage of human resources for health who are trained, motivated, and well-resourced. MIS, there was failure to provide right information at right time to the right people for action. There was poor risk communication. There was shortage of uh, medical products and supplies. Uh, failure to provide common supplies like masks, gloves, et cetera, even not to talk, if we don't talk about PPE, ventilator, et cetera. Financing allocation was not aligned to need mostly, and there was problems with leadership and governance. So, the uh, impacts are obvious, Uh, lack of public resources for health and structural welfare, including shortage of the health care workforce, constraints on disease surveillance and epidemic response capacity, poor health system resilience, limited testing and contact testing due to lack of HRS and lab resources. So, we couldn't actually uh, actually measure properly what what was the exact uh, toll of this COVID-19 in terms of morbidity and mortality. And Interesting thing was that this time was also the time where there was explosion of corruption and irregularities in health sector. That was very uh, unfortunate. I mean, so this is also reflected in this uh, health security uh, assessment done after uh, the COVID or during the COVID in 2021. We uh, see that the South Asian countries uh, scored very less. Uh, between uh, 28.8 in Afghanistan and uh, and uh, 42.8 in India, which is below 50, by 50. Most of the last countries in the region scored less than what was what they scored in 2019. For example, India, Pakistan, and Nepal dropped in 2021 compared to 2019 pre-COVID. Although uh, the, the, the drop was not that much. So, what are the lessons learned? Of course, that strong primary healthcare systems with public health functions like surveillance and emergency preparedness are necessary for attaining ESC and health security. High out-of-pocket expenditure on health and catastrophic health e- expenditure resulted from uh, from uh, managing and t- treatment of COVID. At least two percent GDP investment in health is required, including in PSC, to overcome this phenomenon. Uh, there was poor health system resilience, including COVID-19 response due to uh, shortage of health workforce infrastructure, uh, and lack of diagnostic facilities. Even there was problems with uh, supply of medical oxygen at the peak of uh, COVID-19 uh, waves, uh, different two or three waves were there in this part of the world. And not to tell of the other things like quality of care, you know, use of digital technology that is and that should be uh, that should be improved. That's uh, one of the lessons. So, what's the way forward? If you ask me, I will say you know, there are many things I said. There are many studies done, many researches, but I will focus strongly on this thing that fix the PSC. there lies the problem? and the stakes are too high. Hmm. Sustained investment in PSC is required to turn over the table. At least 2% of the be interested in health sector and the major proportion for primary health care, like 60% or something like that. And investment in PHC should be mainly in uh, human resources for health, especially community health workers who are working at the grassroots and who showed their uh, utility during the COVID uh, peak COVID time and also areas of structure, quality of care, and equitable service delivery. So we should not forget that that no one should be left behind. And all this should be done from public sector financing. And then health security should be inbuilt in the reformed PSC so that it becomes part of the, uh, part of the uh, services that is delivered by primary healthcare and their health workforce are trained in, uh, in in these in, in these uh, in, in tools of forecasting epidemics and pandemics. And ultimately, uh, only this will help us to, build, to be prepared for uh, confronting the next epidemic or pandemic for that matter. I think I'll finish here.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Ahmed. That was a, an outstanding list of challenges and solutions that uh, countries around the world can learn from. So thank you so much for that. And now we're going to uh, to turn to Dr. Tim Buckman uh, from Emory University. Uh, Dr. Buckman, please over
3: to you. Good morning and what a pleasure to be with you today. Let me share my screen with you so we can proceed quickly with the, uh, uh, with the conversation. I'm gonna to speak today on the health and economic burdens of sepsis through the lens of the United States uh, Medicare system. Let me mention that I'm editor in chief of a couple of journals and my opinions today don't necessarily reflect the official position of those journals or the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Now, just before the pandemic, we released three papers from my work with the United States government. Uh, These were published in the March 2020 issue of Critical Care Medicine, and they looked at the burdens of sepsis, the trajectories of sepsis and some forecasting around sepsis. But those data only took us through 2018. Today I'm going to talk about how those trajectories brought us through the pre-pandemic era all the way up to the COVID pandemic. The data were published in the December 2021 issue of Critical Care Medicine, and I'll be reviewing it here today. Now, Medicare is the largest United States focused uh, uh, payer. exceeds the next largest insurer by about a factor of six and our purpose is to evaluate the burden of sepsis in this population to estimate our contemporary costs and we do this to forecast future costs for the united states both for medicare and the larger population Again, it's a U.S. federal insurance program primarily aimed at the aged, uh, folks over 65 years of age. It includes some younger people with disabilities and people with end-stage renal disease. It doesn't include the poverty program. So it is the uh, U.S. federal uh, health insurance program, as I mentioned, primarily for those age 65, some younger people with uh, disabilities. And... uh, Some uh, and people with end stage renal disease. It doesn't uh, include the US Medicare costs. Uh, It doesn't include US uh, Medicaid, rather. It uh, accounts for about a fifth of US total health care costs. And it's again more than six times the largest private payer. Now, beneficiaries can select fee for service. They can also uh, select an HMO plan called Medicare Advantage. But here's the thing the Medicare population is increasing. As shown in the the, uh, uh, picture over here, uh, the Medicare population is now over 60 million and is projected to be more than 80 million by the year 2030. The uh, sepsis at-risk population that we're going to be speaking of are those adults 65 or older uh, and those with chronic conditions. Now, if we look at the Medicare sepsis rates, Uh, just prior to the pandemic, uh, you can see that the number of sepsis admissions was steadily increasing. From the bottom of the slide up is the Medicare Advantage, then the fee for service, and then the solid line is total. And you can see that the system was admitting uh, close to 150,000 patients each month. Those are monthly figures uh, who ended up with a sepsis tag on their uh, diagnoses at the time of discharge. Now, even though it looks like this number is steadily increasing, if we move to a 12-month moving average of those sepsis admissions, you can see there is an inflection point somewhere uh, at the end of 2015, the beginning of 2016, and the numbers did indeed appear to level off. Now, one of the questions I'm always asked is the following. If we look on the left at the sepsis inpatient admission rates per total beneficiaries, you can see the steady rise uh, through the uh, end of 2015, beginning 2016, and then the apparent level off. And if this rate of sepsis admissions per million beneficiaries has plateaued, how can the rate of sepsis admissions measured out of all inpatient admissions still be rising? Where's the inflection point? Well, it turns out that the population that we're seeing in hospitals is changing. I've plotted here on two axes. On the left in Brown, the total number of admissions uh, per month, uh, per per uh, million enrolled beneficiaries. Uh, those are uh, the, the uh, non-sepsis admissions in Brown, up to 25,000 per million enrolled beneficiaries over time, declining over the seven or eight years shown here. In black, the count of the sepsis admissions, now this is shown on the right axis, rising. And what it shows is that we are losing significant numbers of non-sepsis patients. Those elective patients are going elsewhere outside the hospital. The uh, actual Uh, fraction of sepsis uh, uh, admissions per million beneficiaries has now plateaued in the range of about uh, uh, one out of 400 beneficiaries per month. Now let's look at the mortality data. These are cumulative data. What you can see here is that the Data uh, over uh, one week uh, in in uh, uh, within one week of hospital discharge, we were having mortality rates in the range of twenty five percent. All comers uh, at the beginning of two thousand twelve, it declined to about twenty percent by two thousand end of two thousand nineteen. Unfortunately, that mortality would continue to accumulate, and by the end of six months, it was nearly double. What I'm showing over on the right are the mortalities broken out by the uh, degree of uh, severity, uh, septic shock at the top, then severe sepsis where we had our greatest improvements in mortality, uh, the next unspecified sepsis, and then finally the last line, the lowest mortality is when we knew the organism and we were able to treat the organism. Regardless of the severity of the sepsis, though, mortality would continue to accumulate. This is the lower panel over the first six months. Now let's break that down a little bit further. What I've shown you here again in the rust color at the top are sepsis days. That is the uh, mortality cumulative over the first six months. The darker, uh, the the, uh, darker blue line. Uh, is the non-sepsis days, those had significantly lower mortality, but if I break out the mortality after discharge up to six months, you can see it's been remarkably stable. Sepsis patients who survived a hospital discharge continue to have a mortality rate that's pretty steady around 20%, allowing for seasonal variation, while non-sepsis discharges accumulate mortality uh, to about 15%. In other words, and this is a key take-home point, a sepsis discharge will have about a one-third higher mortality compared to a non-sepsis discharge over the first six months after they leave the hospital. Now, if we break this out by age, that Uh, difference falls as we get older. Let's read from the bottom up. In green are the younger patients, 65 to 74 years old. The non-sepsis discharges are shown in the dots. The sepsis discharges are shown in the solid line. And on the right, I show the gap in green at the young age. In yellow is the middle age from 64 Uh, from 75 to 84, and then at the top shown in the rust color is the difference in mortality for a discharge once you get to more than 85 years old. That is, as we get older, we accumulate more illness and the sepsis uh, admission makes less of a difference. Now let's turn for a moment to cost. Let's take a look at the monthly cost of sepsis during inpatient admissions. And as you can see in the United States for Medicare, that reached as high as $2 billion uh, during the uh, winter of 2017-18. We had hoped that these costs were coming down. You can see this in the lower panel. This is the cost per admission. Unfortunately, by the time we got to 2016, those costs were on the rise. And this is important because we've always understood that Medicare was fiendishly expensive. In 2013, Torreo and more thought that the Uh, national cost, this includes Medicare and all the other payers, was about $23.7 billion, with Medicare accounting for $14.6 billion. We continued to study this, and we found that the costs were changing based on the character of the patients who were being admitted. That inflection point around 2015, we had it a plateauing of the sepsis that was present on admission. And what this led to, here's the level off in the uh, number of cases that were present on admission. We have now see that as that leveled off, the cost per case continued to rise. This allowed us to make a prediction model, and you can see the model versus the actual cost, posted here the model is a pretty good fit for what the actual cost turned out to be so let's understand what the model is telling us again from the torio and Moore study uh medicare was supposed to be costing about 14.6 billion of the 23.7 billion total If we projected this forward using a conservative number to account for the aging of the United States population, in the 2018 paper, we projected the total inpatient cost for the United States to not be $24 billion, but in fact, $53 billion. But then, as we got the additional data leading into the pandemic, the Medicare costs we were able to refine. Our projection into the actual cost, instead of costing 16 and a half billion, the actual costs and the projections aligned at about 22.9 billion. And when we move those numbers out to the entire U.S. population, we estimate that the 2019 cost of sepsis was not 24 billion, but in fact, 57.5 billion dollars in the united states for sepsis for 2019. and again all of these rates and projections made good sense and had good power right up until covid so in conclusion i've shown you that the sepsis inpatient admissions are rising the rate is almost double that of medicare beneficiary population growth the inpatient mortality rates have been decreasing but sepsis continues to be associated with a 60 to 75 percent cumulative mortality after three years regardless of its severity our cost per admission was declining but then started to rise again prior to covid the total cost burden to society remains unknown but we continue to underestimate those costs thank you for the privilege of the presentation and i'll stop sharing my screen now
0: Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Buckman. Those were sobering figures and every policymaker in the United States should should see them. They're stark and uh, we'll interrogate some questions uh, after this with everybody if we have time. So thank you so much for that. Our next speaker on universal health coverage for sustainable development uh, is uh, Mr. Roy Small at the United Nations Development Program. Roy, welcome.
4: Thank you very much, Keith, great to be with you. and. A uh, compelling presentation, Timothy. Uh, it's an honor for me to be at this this conference um, and to to follow some compelling presentations. As I mentioned today, I'm going to take a broader look at health and development and overview the power and potential for universal health coverage to help us escape this era of polycrisis uh, where we find ourselves and help get us back on track to achieve Agenda 2030. So I wanna start by taking us back to the year 2015. I'm sure uh, all or most of us are familiar with this, but this is when global leaders and everyday citizens came together and, and, and forged a historic plan of action for people, planet, and prosperity. Agenda 2030, or Sustainable Development Goals, features a range of social, economic, and environmental goals that if achieved would deliver a better future for all. Now, since its inception, Agenda 2030 has drawn some criticism, a lot of twos, too big, too many priorities, too ambitious, for example. But just for a moment, I think we need to consider what the world is experiencing now where we have these complex and interwoven risks and threats that are so numerous that we're using words like polycrisis just to describe them. So to me, Agenda 2030 remains as relevant as ever. And the one upside to today's situation is already having the roadmap that we need to chart a different course. So where is universal health coverage in the sustainable development goals for Agenda 2030? Well, the technical answer is under goal three on health as target 3.8. But perhaps a more accurate answer is everywhere. Uh, because indeed, UHD is both a target unto itself and a means of achieving other goals, both within health and beyond health. And at the same time, other social, economic, and environmental goals contribute to universal health coverage and make it more possible. So how are we doing on this affordable dream of universal health coverage? Well, according to the, uh, the latest data, the world is way off track. Um, at the same time, we need to recognize that we've made tremendous progress since the year 2000. Uh, coverage has been increased for hundreds of millions of people. Yet, as I mentioned, half the world lacked access to essential services, essential health services before COVID, and still lacks it now. And we know that the pandemic halted or reduced universal health coverage virtually everywhere. And vaccine inequity has shined a spotlight on our failures in universalism and solidarity, and I would add in, in empathy. And meanwhile, COVID is not over, uh, remains uh, unpredictable, and health and health systems are facing other major concurrent threats. Uh, that includes the chance for another pandemic that may come sooner than we would like to think. So the broader sustainable development landscape is also filled with crisis and uncertainty. So in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, for the first time ever, UNDP's human development index value, the combined measure of multidimensional aspects of development has declined and for two years straight. Now it can be tempting to blame the pandemic for all of this, and no doubt it has played a massive role. But even before COVID-19, the SDGs were not on track, and six of seven people worldwide felt insecure in rich and poor countries alike. So to me and to UNDP, this means that we need to dig deeper for our explanations uh, and revisit our prevailing development models and approaches. And I think universal health coverage can help us to do that. Um, first, I think we should have learned our lesson of the importance of investing in the SDGs. Uh, and now with the SDGs off track, accelerators of progress are in high demand and UHC certainly fits the bill as I'll talk about. Second, UHC and global health security are mutually reinforcing. We need to address them together. Countries with universal health coverage have handled COVID-19 better and vice versa. Some innovative approaches to COVID are necessitated by COVID are now being extended to other health challenges and universal health coverage. And third, UHC helps us to reorient our development approaches around healthy societies, one health approaches, planetary health, something that perhaps does not put gross domestic product at the center. Now, I'm gonna cover a few examples of how UHC can contribute to the SDGs uh, because otherwise I would need the rest of the conference and I'm sure nobody wants that. Um, But just consider the, the top example of people being pushed into extreme poverty due to health expenditures. And this makes UHC not just a health measure, but a leading poverty and inequality reduction measure. And the same applies in other domains. So for example, universal health coverage offers a powerful tool to address the human capital loss that we've seen during the pandemic or the rising gender inequalities that we've seen during the pandemic. Or think about the power of UHC and all that it entails and all the principles behind it to restore trust in global and national systems to deliver at a time when trust is in short supply. Now, to understand the importance of universal health coverage to our economicals, I mean, see the presentation that just preceded me, of course. Um, and I would also say, look at the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, The IMF forecasts that the pandemic will cost the global economy $12.5 trillion through 2024. Now, that's more than the estimated annual cost to finance the SDG agenda in full, uh, numbers that were put out uh, earlier around 2015. That's around five to $7 trillion. And it's 500 times as much as some have estimated pandemic prevention measures would have cost us. So universal health coverage together with pandemic preparedness, I hope can help us to once and for all reframe health as an investment and not a cost. Uh, And that includes an investment in the global health workforce, which is 70% women. In focusing us on sustainability, on access and equity, universal health coverage can also accelerate the environmental SDGs. So for example, greening health service delivery through reliable clean energy solutions and sustainable procurement, that's a big part of the environmental solution. So consider that the health sector accounts for around 5% of greenhouse gas emissions. It's a top uh, emitter of gas emissions. At the same time, clean energy can expand access uh, to previously unreached uh, populations, for example, rural populations. It can ensure uninterrupted health service delivery, moving from lesser uh, reliable energy supplies. And we can't forget the power of prevention. Uh, It's been said uh, that the greenest health center is the one that we don't need to build. So I've been focusing on how UHC can advance the SDGs, but it's important to point out that the reverse also applies. And that's because our health, our access to health services and demand for health services are shaped in large part by underlying social, economic, commercial and environmental determinants. And if we don't tackle these head on, you see some examples here, UHC cannot be achieved. Uh, So we must ensure whole of government and whole of society approaches which put health and human security at the center. So I'd like to offer a few areas of focus to advance UHC for the SDGs. Uh, First, I think we have an opportunity to build on the technological leaps that have been sparked by the pandemic, uh, while also ensuring that this winds up closing equity gaps rather than widening them, uh, recognizing access to to these solutions. Second, we must include vulnerable and marginalized groups in all aspects of health policy and programming. Uh, that's from, from the initial design, to the rollout, to the monitoring, to the tweaking. Third, we have an opportunity to pair urgent action uh, for UHC with similarly urgent action to achieve the Paris Agreement. Our WHO has said that the Paris Agreement is fundamentally a public health agreement. And fourth, I think we need to ensure people-centered care that responds to the complex way disease conditions and their risk factors interact. So for example, that includes comorbidities between infectious and non-communicable diseases. And again, COVID-19 was a significant example of these interactions. So I wanna close just by commending the Global Sepsis Alliance for putting forth uh, a comprehensive conference that breaks down silos and brings issues and people together. I think this is exactly what we need. And I think getting investments and action right for sepsis can be a pathfinder approach for health, the climate, for UHC, the SDGs broadly. And first and foremost, I think that must include finally ridding global health or development broadly of these so-called under-recognized problems or silent killers or neglected issues that we know about. Um, and tackling sepsis also reinforces other key aspects, for example, the need for multi-sectoral approaches, a focus on prevention and timely treatment and expanding the research and using the data-driven approaches needed to leave no one behind. And with that, thank you for your time.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Roy, that was outstanding. You gave uh, a roadmap of solutions that all should be uh, should listen to. And it's a nice way to integrate the previous outstanding um, presentations, which fit very well with what you said. Thank you so much. And finally, we have uh, for our next speaker, we have uh, Mr. Rob Yates, who is going to speak on how universal health coverage can climb up the political ladder. So how we get it done. And he's from Chatham House. Um, Roy, uh, sorry, Rob, welcome. And thank Thank you very much for joining us from the UK.
5: Thank you. Greetings from Chatham House in London. Thank you so much for having me on that this afternoon. And yes, I'd like to talk about the the politics of of universal health coverage. And and I just uh, have a a presentation I'd like to uh, share with you about that. So, um, yes, I'm from Chatham House. I'm the director of the Centre for Universal Health at uh, at Chatham House. Uh, And I want to talk about how UHC can climb up the political agenda, particularly in in sort of times of uh, of crisis. So... um, just so we're all on the same page, uh, UHC uh, has been well-defined already, actually, by previous presenters, but it's all people receiving the quality health services they need without suffering financial hardship. Of course, UHC, before the pandemic, it was very much driving the global health agenda. Um, you know, we, we saw that there was UNGA resolution back in December 2012. It's got its own UHC day. Um, there was a high-level meeting, actually, the UN in 2019, where many heads of uh, government spoke. Um, of course, it's a, an SDG target in its own right, as we've been hearing, um, and many are seeing uh, UHC as one of the best drivers to improve uh, health security. Dr uh, Tedros at WHO has been saying this frequently. Um, and of course, we've got another high-level meeting coming up on uh, the 21st of September this year. So you can very much see that there is this great interest at a head of state level to promote universal health coverage. And if we think about transitions to universal health coverage, of course, you need to reform all your health systems, the access to medicines and human resources and infrastructure, uh, governance, IT systems. But the one you absolutely must get right is your health financing system. Uh, particularly if you're going to have this universal access to services and universal uh, financial protection. Logically, the only way that you can do that is through a predominantly publicly financed health system. And that, that was something that Gro Brundtland said at the last high-level meeting. If there is one lesson the world has learnt, it is you can only reach UHC through public financing. Um, and I think that this uh, these graphs illustrate this transition very well. So so, uh, WHO have been doing a lot of these graphs recently, showing countries that are spending a lot in terms of their their GDP in, notice this is public spending. Um, Now, what that means is that people in these quite wealthy countries get good access to health services, but they're also not having to pay high out-of-pocket user fees, which we were hearing from Roy just a moment ago, uh, are a major source of impoverishment. These countries up here, you might say, are sort of starting their UHC journeys. They have low public spending, high private uh, financing, which is associated with poor access to to services and high levels of impoverishment. And the journey is really around replacing private voluntary financing with compulsory public financing, but this being an inherently political process. Now, what's also interesting is about these transitions to UHC that it, they don't tend to be very smooth, the, the, this replacement of a private financing by public financing. You get countries making big sort of jumps. Uh, when they suddenly put a lot of money into their health system to to try and improve access and reduce impoverishment, and these big jumps are very much associated with interventions at a head of state level. You know that if you're suddenly going to put half a percent, maybe one percent of GDP into your health system, this has got to be a decision taken right at the top of government. And it's unusual for ministers of finance to voluntarily come up with this type of funding. And I'll mention some of these reforms in a moment. But notice. Thailand back in 2001, China in the mid 2000s, huge increases in public financing. But there are other countries that are where that's still to happen. So the big question is, how can we encourage these countries to do what these countries have done and really ramp up their public financing? Um, and I think it's also very important to look at where we are now as, as global health coming out of COVID. And really take stock of the, the health financing picture, because I think what uh, COVID showed and, and previous speakers have mentioned was a, a, an alarming lack of solidarity between rich and poor countries during uh, the, the global health crisis. Uh, not only in terms of countries like ours in the UK stockpiling vaccines, but also not funding Act A properly and not facilitating tech transfers. So a lot of developing countries, I think, have felt uh, very left out, very left behind um, by the the Western and rich countries. And we're seeing this having an impact, I think, on sort of other uh, political crises in terms of uh, solidarity around the, the climate action and maybe even a Ukraine conflict as well. That developing countries are saying, why should we care about the crisis that you care about when you didn't support us uh, during COVID-19? This has been exacerbated by huge cuts in aid financing for health, um, especially here in the UK, where we've seen enormous cuts in aid financing for health. And I think a number of global health agencies are perhaps in denial that the world has changed, that, you know, whereas we ought to be providing additional financing for developing countries, this isn't forthcoming at the moment. But this is the world in which we live at the moment and I think we need to recognise that increasingly domestic public financing is going to be by far the biggest driver of UHC and also in improving health security. Um, So that really ought to be our focus. How do we encourage countries to increase their domestic public financing? And of course the key to that. Is political commitment. How do we get governments to really ramp up their political commitment to their health system? And I think that actually this difficult world in which we live at the moment might actually be the opportunity to do that, because it tends to be crises that that can really make or break leaders. And, and you know, we have definitely seen during the COVID crises that leaders like Donald Trump and uh, Boris Johnson and Bolsonaro in Brazil that that manifestly had poor COVID responses have all been voted out of office. And other leaders are recognising that they really have to sort of take improving health security and UHC very seriously. And, you know, this is a time, I think, to be talking to political leaders about the merits of investing in their health systems. And there's a real history behind great universal health systems coming out of crises, not least here in the UK, where famously we launched our NHS, where we were a post-conflict state dependent on USAID back in the 1940s. Uh, but France and Japan did the same thing. So you can see uh, UHC reforms coming out of uh, conflict um, likewise, after the Asian financial crisis, Prime Minister Taksin launched very, very successful UHC reforms. Uh, despite the World Bank saying that the con- country couldn't afford to do it, he proved them wrong. And, you know, he introduced uh, very, very impressive UHC reforms back in 2002. China is a very ex- interesting a- a- example of a country that had previously had a very PHC-led UHC system, but rather neglected it during the 80s and 90s as they liberalised their economy. And as a result, uh, private financing, out-of-pocket financing really dominated at at the beginning of the 2000s. But it was the SARS epidemic that really uh, made the the Chinese government recognise that hundreds of millions of people weren't really accessing uh, health services, uh, much to their alarm, But it was the political fallout from that, that the population were very angry that they could no longer uh, get decent health care, affordable health care, which meant that the the Chinese government in effect re-socialized the health financing system with hundreds of billions of dollars of tax financing just in the last 15 or so years. And there are other examples as well of leaders doing this. You know, that this is uh, Governor Jokowi. He was then governor of Jakarta uh, back in 2012, introducing a universal free uh, health system uh, to the population of Jakarta and it promoting him of the political agenda. All of a sudden, all the parties wanted him to be their presidential candidate. And sure enough, two years later, he ran for president on a UHC platform and won that election and has been in power ever since. And you're seeing smart political leaders recognise that that now might be the opportunity for them to do likewise and introduce a universal health system. So we have uh, President Ramaphosa in South Africa early on in the pandemic saying that he was going to use the COVID response to prepare for their national health insurance reforms that are passing through Parliament at the moment. So maybe watch South Africa as a country that that likewise socializes its health health financing system coming out of these crises. And it's interesting to see, of course, the the, the one outlier, the one wealthy country that that, uh, hasn't uh, adopted this predominantly uh, publicly financed system, the United States where um, when President Biden was elected, uh, this tweet was actually taken from just a couple of days after he won the election, saying that he was going to work with Congress to ensure universal health coverage in America. And of course, everyone is aware that he's just announced to run for president again today. So maybe he'll uh, really ramp up his uh, performance in achieving UHC. And this being um, one of his big platforms for the next election in 2014. So watch this space on the US. But it's in recognition that, that so many leaders at times of crisis have reached for universal health reforms as a smart policy, not only to improve their health indicators, but to expand their economy but bring enormous societal benefits and political benefits to them personally, that we at Chatham House have set up a commission for universal health, which is specifically targeting political leaders to encourage them to launch UHC reforms. And our commission is co-chaired by the former president of Tanzania, Jakai Kikwete, uh, and also the former prime minister of New Zealand, Helen Clark, And they are specifically speaking to political leaders about the merits of launching UHC reforms. And um, this could be one of the best responses to what people are talking about, poly crises, perma crises, that now could be the best time to do this, that that COVID-19 has clearly been one of the biggest health crises in over, over a century, but leaders are now facing multiple crises relating to conflict, energy, food prices, and and people looking to their political leaders for quick wins, particularly around giving them access to decent services and financial protection. Um, So now could be the best time to promote UHC reforms to political leaders. And it's going to be very interesting around the high level meeting coming up in September to see which countries might really go for it now and catch up with those other countries that you launch UHC reforms in the last uh, 10 or 12 years. Uh, So um, if people are interested in following more developments on UHC, I tweet incessantly on this. um, And that's my Twitter handle there. But uh, thank you very much indeed for, for listening to my presentation today. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. Thank you very much, Rob. That is uh, a bit of the cherry on the top in bringing everybody together in terms of how we're going to get from A to B and and really arguing that this is really smart politics. I think we have time for a question. Uh, so what I'm going to do is just go down from Carolyn, down from top to bottom, and ask you a very simple question, which is, what is the one thing that you can share with the attendees uh, that are here today from around the world, what is the one action that they can take to be able to reduce the burden of, of sepsis? And you could go 1A or 1B if you really feel compelled. So, uh, Carolyn, please, we'll start with you.
1: Uh, from my, my point of view, it would be important to um, foster the potential of uh, prevention uh, especially uh, by vaccination and hygiene. Uh, we saw that um, pneumococci, for example, caused so many sepsis deaths and can be prevented by, by vaccines. So uh, that's a potential we should use in the future.
0: Thank you, Carolyn. And it was a powerful point when you spoke about hygiene, low-cost, high-impact interventions with vaccination. Um, uh, Saeed, please, over to you. What's the one... Action that you would hope that policymakers and the public can adopt.
2: Thank you, thank you. So for me, it is again the PSC, because that's the way how to uh, promote preventive services, including infection prevention and control, and uh, make it part of everyday life uh, of the of the of the community that uh, a particular health facility is work. So I think it's again the PSC which should be fixed for sepsis prevention and other preventive uh, activities, preventive health services. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Said. And we had a number of people from Bangladesh online today, which is wonderful. Uh, Tim, over to you. You shared this really truly jaw-dropping costs of 57.5 billion in 2019, uh, that sepsis cost the United States, a country that we know doesn't have universal health coverage. So what's the argument that you would you would give to the American uh, viewers today? What can they do to advance universal health coverage and reduce sepsis in the United States?
3: I'll chime in with all the other speakers. We cannot fix sepsis once it's established. It's very hard to mitigate. Prevention is our best, and I would argue, our most important pathway. This involves public awareness campaigns, vaccination, and early mitigation strategies as soon as the host response to infection appears to be losing control. Awareness and prevention are key.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Tim. Uh, Roy, you also brought in another much neglected opportunity, which was really addressing the triple crisis. So universal health coverage was interesting going back and forth between UHC health and, and the triple planetary crisis. Can you share with us what, from your view, what is, what is some of the a, you know, top action item that panelists, uh, sort of viewers can take that you want them to do to be able to reduce the burden of sepsis? And, uh, and address that triple planetary crisis.
4: Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I think maybe not an action, but a way of thinking, a way of working. Um, I think good things come from working together and, and we see what happens when we have fragmented approaches. Um, so I don't think anyone is gonna solve this challenge working on their own. And I think coming together like at this conference must just be one example of us looking across our sectors, our silos, scanning horizons for integrated solutions. And I think both universal health coverage and agenda 2030 are just sitting there as proven roadmaps uh, to do that. Uh, and I think we need to invest in them. And once we once we reach that sort of uh, that frame and that way of working and we, we invest in it, we can get to this sort of evidence generation and joint planning and coordination and all that's required under that. Um, and of course, it's a, it's a political choice as well, but we need to be thinking about it in this broader context of, you know, we need to address a looming debt crisis or else countries won't be able to invest in UHC. We need to tackle uh, the, the disproportionate impacts on vulnerable countries of the climate crisis or else it'll be more difficult for UHC. So we have to think about this all together and work together. Thank you.
0: Uh, thank you. And I think that, that it's a very important point to know that what you all shared is actually smart economics. It's not only life-saving, but it's smart economics. And I can do a shout-out, frankly, to the work that UNDP, UN Environment Programme, UN Biodiversity, the IUCN, WHO, all of you have done in actually showing the health benefits of addressing the triple planetary crisis and how that, and you've all extended that into the issue of sepsis. So thank you. And then, Rob, finally, to you, we've heard a lot of solutions, but as you definitely pointed out, these are political choices and political decisions. So what... Uh, do you want the viewers today to do to be able to bridge that gap between what we know and what we need to do to be able to address this challenge?
5: Sure. And I think it's all about us being much more sort of politically savvy, you know, that we're masters in global health are preaching to the converted and everyone on here i think is is unanimous that the people we need to be persuading are our political leaders so so i think we need to get a lot smarter if we're serious about universal protection against sepsis i mean you do need to socialize your health financing system and and you know have a system whereby the healthy wealthy cross subsidize the sick and the poor and that, and that you know the money is spent very efficiently on preventive services as we've been hearing and what we need to do a lot more is, is presenting the evidence to political leaders, promoting the health benefits, the economic benefits, but not being coy about the, the political benefits. You know, the, you know, this is popular, that sort of helping people at times of crisis is a smart thing to do. So I think we need to get a, a lot more smarter at presenting
0: the political benefits to political leaders. Yeah. And I think as you, as you, as you, um, said so powerfully that that in a a way that this is really smart politics too and you've laid a challenge for all of us to be you don't need to be partisan but you need we need to be politically engaged otherwise this isn't going to happen tim you have your
3: hand up is that yes i do i think it's more than socialization of the political leaders i think we have to make sepsis prevention a social norm for the populace we often overlook the fact that politicians can create policy and provide funding. But unless the populace is fully engaged, those ex- those uh, expenditures will not be as effective as they might be. So it, it really has to be partially grassroots. We have to find a way of joining our leaders and our followers in this common cause. Over.
0: Thank you, Tim, um, very much. And as a former Canadian Member of Parliament, I can say that uh, to just say amen to what you just said, because uh, in truth, we know that the public can move the political, and it's up to all of us to engage not only political leaders, but also the public to inform and engage them, and that can be an incredible force for good. Uh, On behalf of uh, everybody at the World Sepsis Congress, I'd like to thank all of you, our wonderful uh, speakers who gave powerful presentations, Dr. Carolyn Fleshman-Struzik, Dr. Uh, Saeed uh, Ahmed, Dr. Tim Buckman, um, Dr. Roy Small, and Mr. Rob Yates. And for all of you watching, thank you for joining us. And, And I would say that all of these speakers' presentations are going to be up on the World Sepsis Congress site, so please check it out. Uh, they'll be there for to be to see and to share. Also, follow the World Sepsis Congress. Follow them on social media. Sign the Sepsis Declaration. And from all of uh, all of you who have joined us, thank you. We've all got our marching orders from these wonderful panelists. Uh, let's just we need to get on, bridge the gap between what we know and what what we need to do in terms of political action. And if we do we can all see the incredible benefits that will come to people's lives and also to our beleaguered planet. Thank you for joining us today. Much thanks to all the team uh, who have been putting this together. And have a wonderful day, everybody, and continue to watch the World Sepsis Congress. Thanks so much. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who contributed to making this possible. Session 3 will be available next Tuesday, May 9th. For the full release schedule or background on the speakers and the program, please take a look at the Congress website.